What Makes a Killer contains graphic details of sexual assault and violence and is not intended for all audiences. Listener discretion is strongly advised. On July 29, 1976, 18-year-old Donna Loria and her 19-year-old friend Jody Valenti had just returned home after a night out in New York City. The girls were sitting in their parked car outside of their apartment when a man appeared from out of the shadows and approached the vehicle. He pulled out a gun and fired five shots into the car. They represented everything that he hated, everything he resented. They were people with their, their lives ahead of them. They were out having fun. Donna died instantly and Jody was seriously wounded. The young girls were the first two victims of a dangerous and delusional killer. Within a year, the man would claim five more young lives, spreading panic throughout the city. And in a taunting letter to police, gave himself a nickname that would go down in infamy, Son of Sam. Some people called it the Summer of Sam. It captivated everyone. It created fear. The frenzy of activity was like nothing I'd ever seen. People genuinely were afraid to go out. You cannot overestimate or exaggerate just how much that fear gripped the city. What he did to those families, to have been devastated and never got over what happened to their children. Bad times, those bad times. This is What Makes a Killer, a true crime series that chronicles the lives of the world's most notorious killers. I'm your host, Jennifer Natoso. In every episode, we'll trace a killer's origins, examine their behavior, and follow their path to bloodshed. In this episode, we'll discuss David Berkowitz, the son of Sam. David Berkowitz was born on June 1, 1953, in Brooklyn, New York. Originally named Richard David Falco, he was the product of an affair between his biological mother Betty and a married man from Long Island named Joseph. Former reporter Brian Cates shares more about the very beginnings of Berkowitz's life. She became pregnant. He essentially said that he would not adopt the child, he would have nothing to do with the child, and uh, David was given up for uh, adoption. He was adopted by a couple named Pearl and Nathan Berkowitz, who renamed him David. Criminologist Dr. Elizabeth Yardley has more about the couple. They were a middle-aged couple, Jewish, working class, and they had no children. So I think this was a family which was, was set up for happiness, really. You have this childless couple, you have this baby that needs a home. The first few years of his life were like that of any other child. But when he was seven years old, David discovered the hidden truth. He heard the word adopted from his adoptive father, and they had to explain to him what that term meant. I think that probably made David very, very uncomfortable. I don't think he could grasp it. After learning about his parentage, the once happy-go-lucky boy quickly turned into a disruptive and difficult child. At one point, I understand, they enlisted the help of a therapist or a psychologist to deal with his disciplinary problems, both at home and at school. 
Berkowitz never really gets along with his peers. He doesn't form particularly healthy relationships with them. He's a kid who always flies off the handle. He has poor behavioral control, so he becomes increasingly isolated. When he was 14, Berkowitz's world further unraveled. His adoptive mother dies from cancer, and he's facing a loss here. But I think the culture at that time was still very much, we don't talk about our feelings. So this would not have been a helpful thing for him. A few years later, his father remarried. David was not happy about that. It made him angry. And this is where we begin to see the, the growth and real rage in his personality. On June 23, 1971, 18-year-old Berkowitz joined the army. His extensive training in weaponry taught him to be a sharpshooter. While serving, Berkowitz wrote a disturbing letter to a friend back home in which he said, all of these courses will come in handy one day. He ended his letter by cryptically writing, one day there will be a better world. Journalist Jeffrey Wansel delves into Berkowitz's writings. Berkowitz wrote saying, I've learned things in the army and I'm gonna use them. Maybe a bit of bluster, but maybe also a horrifying first note in what would become a desperately criminal career. In June 1974, three years after joining, Berkowitz left the army and returned home to his father Nathan. But when the hardware store that Nathan Berkowitz owned was robbed, Nathan decided to leave New York for good, leaving his son behind. Newly alone in the city, David Berkowitz needed a job. By some accounts, he wanted to become a firefighter. But when that didn't pan out, Berkowitz settled for a low-paying security job. The long, solitary nights gave Berkowitz plenty of time to ruminate. Berkowitz already sees himself as an outsider. But he's not settled. He feels hurt. He knows he's a loner. He knows he can't relate very well to other people. So this is when he starts to become quite dangerous. Feeling more isolated than ever, Berkowitz decided to track down his biological mother, Betty. After locating her, he sent her a poem on May 11, 1975, Mother's Day. Betty was ecstatic to hear from her long-lost son and arranged for them to meet. She's delighted to see him, and they have this wonderful reunion, apparently. And... They continue to meet, and they have this kind of loving relationship. But the happy reunion was short-lived for Berkowitz. He meets his half-sister. This was the child that his mother didn't give away. And he realizes that he was a throwaway child, and there's this other child that's been loved all this time by his mother, and he becomes furious. Many believe this rejection by his mother was the seed that sprouted into Berkowitz's hatred for women. Feeling shunned, alone, his paranoid thoughts festered. In a letter to his father, he wrote, Dad, the world is getting dark now. The people, they are developing a hatred for me. So what he's doing in this letter is presenting himself as the victim, saying, poor me, I have this horrible life now. And he's essentially saying to his adoptive father, it's your fault because you left me. I'm sure at that point he is building yet more fantasies that he's been rejected, not just by the world, but by women. In November 1975, Berkowitz spent the month completely isolated in his apartment, 
nailing blankets over the windows to block out the outside world. He wrote cryptic and dark messages on the walls like, In this hole lives the wicked king and kill for my master. I think this was attention-seeking behavior, and he gets very frustrated that nobody comes to check up on him. I think there's a kind of sense of entitlement there that other people should be looking after me. Then on Christmas Eve, December 24th, David Berkowitz emerged from his apartment, intent on making good on the messages. Consumed by anger from his mother's abandonment and armed with a hunting knife, Berkowitz set out on a mission to kill. A former detective on the case, Bill Gardella, recalls what happened next. He was in the area of Yonkers, and he had a knife with him. And he walked up to a young lady, started stabbing her. She screamed, left, went a couple of blocks away, and started stabbing another lady. She screamed, and he left. Only one of those two ladies reported it. I think the timing is really significant here because Christmas is a family time. I think it's when Berkowitz is feeling the most resentful towards people who have things that he doesn't. I think the thing that he would have come away with is I enjoyed that, I liked harming them, but I didn't achieve the outcome that I wanted and that was to kill them. Having failed his mission, Berkowitz returned home and reflected on the attempted murder. In the coming months, he decided he would need a new attack method. What this army-trained sharpshooter needed now was to acquire a new weapon. Berkowitz was done with assault. It was time for full-blown murder. In December 1975, 22-year-old David Berkowitz attempted to kill two women by stabbing them with a hunting knife. By April 1976, Berkowitz had decided to change his tactic and swapped out a knife for a gun. Former reporter Brian Kate says those who knew Berkowitz had conflicting opinions about his personality. David Berkowitz, to the people who knew him, was this kind of puzzle of many pieces, and many of the pieces didn't fit, so that there were some who saw this happy-go-lucky, slightly shy, helpful young man, and others who saw this angry edge. Criminologist Dr. Elizabeth Yardley says that during this time, Berkowitz developed a hateful obsession with his neighbor, retiree Sam Carr. His neighbor's dog, Harvey, barks during the night, and he finds this really annoying. And he will ruminate about this. He, He dwells on it. Tensions between he and his neighbor came to a head in May when Berkowitz threw a Molotov cocktail into Carr's backyard. Terrified, Carr reported it to police. However, the crime was never pinned on Berkowitz. He was free to continue down a fiery path, setting nearby buildings ablaze. When we look at young people who engage in this kind of behavior, fire setting is a way of them maintaining control. It's an externalization. They have these these feelings, they want to do something with those feelings, and rather than turning it in on themselves, they turn it outward to start harming other people and other things. Soon after the fires, Berkowitz was ready to try his hand at murder again. He illegally bought a Bulldog 44 caliber revolver, a weapon he knew he could use with calculated precision. Former Detective Bill Gardella says on Thursday, July 29th, 
Berkowitz was out stalking the streets of the Bronx. David Berkowitz was driving in the street looking for his next victims. And then he spotted them. 18-year-old Donna Loria and her 19-year-old friend Jody. The two girls had been out playing backgammon at a local bar. And after returning to Donna's apartment, both were sitting in the car just outside of the building. Journalist Jeffrey Wansel describes the violence that ensued. They were chatting to one another when all of a sudden, out of the blue, out of nowhere, the passenger side window explodes. And what's happened is that Berkowitz has gone into a firing position, extended the gun with both hands, and fired five times into the car. Donna was fatally wounded in the neck, while her friend Jody was shot in the thigh. Having heard the gunfire, Donna's father rushed outside, but there was nothing he could do to save his daughter. Berkowitz fled without being seen. It turned out that the bullet recovered was a 44 bullet from a bulldog revolver, which was a rare gun. David Berkowitz said that when he left that scene, he sang a song on the way home because the demons had told him to go out and kill, and he killed. I think he quite enjoyed that high, that kind of elevated sense of status of taking someone else's life. He's targeting young people who are happy, people who have their whole lives ahead of them. And he feels, actually, I'm entitled to take that away from them because they don't deserve it, and I do. Unable to find a motive for the shooting, police wrote it off as a botched mafia hit. Berkowitz later said he was disappointed his first killing didn't make the headlines. After that first murder, in August of 1976, David Berkowitz was at the Westchester County Mall, and he said nobody recognizes him as if somebody should know who he is. And he says, I wish I had a machine gun. Three months later, on October 23, 1976, Berkowitz struck again. This time, he targeted a couple on a date in the nearby borough of Queens. The couple was parked on a so-called lover's lane. An individual by the name of Carl De Niro is parked with his girlfriend, sitting in a car at night, and he's sitting in the passenger side, and Carl De Niro has long hair. It's believed that Berkowitz thought De Niro was a girl. Berkowitz fired into their car, hitting 20-year-old Carl in the head. However, Berkowitz was ultimately unsuccessful with his attack, as Carl survived the shooting and his date Rosemary was completely unharmed. One month later, Berkowitz took to the streets of Queens to find more victims. In the early hours of November 27th, he came upon 16-year-old Donna DeMassey and 18-year-old Joanne Lamino sitting on a stoop. He then walks over, says a few words, and shoots and flees the scene. Mr. Massey survived. Miss Lamino is confined to a wheelchair for the rest of her life. Devastating injury. Yet again, Berkowitz fails to kill them. But on January 30th, 1977, Berkowitz would kill again. 26-year-old Christine Freund and her fiancé, 30-year-old John Deal, were out on a date when Berkowitz came upon them. He parks not far from where that couple was, and he observes a Christine Freund sitting in a car with her fiancé. Runs up to the car and shoots Christine Freund, killing her instantly. Berkowitz shot Christine in the temple and in the neck. Terrified, 
Her fiancé John ran for help, but nothing could be done for Christine, and she was pronounced dead at the hospital. The young couple was recently engaged and was about to tell their parents the happy news. Instead of a wedding, Christine's family got to plan a funeral as Berkowitz celebrated his second fatal shooting. None of the Berkowitz shootings were seen as particularly unusual until uh, the murder of Christine Freund. And here, for the first time, police said that they saw some connection between this shooting and previous shootings. Now we begin to see that there might be something more than a series of isolated shootings. Three days after Christine Freund's death, a 16-person homicide task force was established by the New York City Police Department. New York was under attack by a killer with a clear hatred of women, specifically targeting those with long, dark hair, a trait that all of Berkowitz's victims shared. He also had a fascination with lovers' lanes, something authorities believed was due to Berkowitz's virginity. There could be a voyeuristic element. I've never had sex myself, and I bet they're about to have sex, and I want to see what it's like. I do believe that there may have been an element of trying to destroy his mother. What is clear is he's completely off the wall. They were in lovers' lanes, around discos. Berkowitz clearly had problems with women. He said later that he saw his mother sitting in those cars when he shot the girls. By now, Berkowitz had shot six people, killing two. With increased confidence, Berkowitz returned to the streets of Forest Hills in Queens on March 8th. On this evening, Berkowitz changed up his routine, going on the hunt in the early evening and choosing a lone victim. College student Virginia Vascarician is walking down the street. The time of 7.30 is much earlier than the previous incidents. She's walking down the street and the assailant is approaching her. She sees him pull out a gun and she puts her books in front of her head and he shoots through the books and kills her instantly. As he had done before, Berkowitz fled the scene, even saying hello to a passerby. So when we look at Virginia, his third murder victim, he's starting to increase in confidence now. He feels quite invincible. He feels kind of elated. He attacks her in the middle of the street because he feels untouchable. He feels like he can get away with it. What was it that made him change his modus operandi? I think he just felt like experimenting. He's been in this state of collapse, if you like, this fugue of horror, this terror reign for 15 months. Berkowitz killed 20-year-old Virginia with a single shot to the head from his 44 Bulldog revolver. When pathologists removed the bullet, police were certain they were dealing with a serial killer. They did a forensic comparison and found that the same gun used on the Freud shooting was used in the Vascarician shooting. Two days after Virginia's murder, New York City Police Commissioner Michael Codd held a press conference. He told reporters that they were on the hunt for a serial shooter. He announced that the bullet was a 44 caliber bullet, that it was fired from a Charter Arms Bulldog revolver, and that it was linked to at least three killings. And for the first time now, we see officially that all these shootings are linked. David Berkowitz was finally getting the attention he so desperately craved. At this point, 
news outlets were referring to him as the 44 caliber killer. Now the city is in Berkowitz's palm. He's got the city now where he wants it. He's accomplished what he wants to do, which is to have the city in total fear of him. And the newly christened 44 caliber killer was just getting started. By March 1977, 23-year-old David Berkowitz had shot and killed three young women in New York City. His attacks also left four people seriously injured. New York City Police Commissioner Michael Codd held a press conference alerting citizens to a serial killer in their midst. He was dubbed the 44 caliber killer after his weapon of choice. Former reporter Brian Cates says that media outlets were rushing to get the story to print. His conference created a frenzy in the media. For the first time, we had a name for the killer, the 44 caliber killer. It was a perfect tabloid headline, and any time there was a shooting, young people involved, reporters went scrambling to find the story. David Berkowitz, yearning for attention his entire life, reveled in the media coverage. He religiously watched news reports about his crimes and saved newspaper clippings as trophies. As news spread about the 44 caliber killer, so did fear. These series of shootings really did grip the city. People avoided going out late. This was a time of sex, drugs, and disco, and many of these shootings were involved in lovers' lanes and around discos. So you began to sense this growing fear particularly among young women. People could talk about nothing else. People read the story. Girls begin to worry parents wouldn't let their kids out for late night dates. People began to see a pattern in these shootings that the the victims were pretty young women with long brown hair. Girls began cutting their hair, dyeing it blonde. There was an overall growing sense of fear. Once it was determined that he was targeting young females, and maybe by coincidence they had long brown hair, women were going to the beauty salons buying wigs, blonde wigs, or dyeing their hair. No case can match the frenzy and the fear of the Son of Sam killings. New York City was no stranger to crime, but these killings had a major impact on the city. I was in New York in the 1970s, and The crimes literally hypnotized the city. They were everyday tabloid headlines. A son of Sam terrorizes people afraid in Queens, Brooklyn, and the Bronx. It was as though the city was afraid to take a breath. It literally grabbed the imagination of New York. The team investigating the shootings was the NYPD's Omega Task Force. This normally 16-person team was expanded to 30 people and all of them were determined to find the killer. As they worked frantically to do so, Berkowitz decided he needed another headline. Less than a month after earning the title of 44 caliber killer, he set out to kill once again. He returned to the Bronx. Former Detective Bill Gardella details this next attack. On April 17, 1977, Valentina Suriani and Alexander Esau at 3 a.m. in the morning were parked in a car when the assailant came up to the car, put his hand on the hood, and fired through the front windows. 18-year-old Valentina died almost instantly. Her 20-year-old boyfriend Alexander died two hours later in the hospital. 
Berkowitz successfully got away again. But this time, he left a surprise for investigators. They found a letter that had been left by the killer for Detective Joseph Borelli, the uh, Omega Task Force leader. And the killer complained that he had been referred to as a woman hater, and he was angry about that. Berkowitz also said in the letter, I love to hunt, prowling the streets looking for fair game. Tasty meat. The women of Queens are prettiest of all. After analyzing the letter, psychological profilers were certain the killer's message revealed his motive. He loathed women. What was interesting about the note, the spelling was good, but he always spelled the word women incorrectly. He would spell it W-E-M-O-N. If you change the W to a D, he would have demon. Now, whether in his mind women were demons or what have you, but he was threatening to commit more murders as a result of that note. He's wanting recognition. He's wanting attention now for the things that he's done. But he's also saying things like, I don't belong on on this earth. In other words, I am better than everybody else. Perhaps the most chilling line of his letter to Captain Borelli was the last. I don't want to kill anymore. No, sir. No more. But I must honor thy father. And then he signed it. Son of Sam. It was the first time we had any mention of this name, the Son of Sam. And immediately, his moniker changed from the 44 caliber killer to the Son of Sam. And no one at that time really had any clue of exactly what that meant. Criminologist Dr. Elizabeth Yardley explains this self-identification. He wants that brand, that identity. You can see that this is someone who thinks very highly of himself, and he's, he's quite disappointed, I think, that he hasn't had that recognition that he feels he deserves. At the time, the press and public were unaware that the Sam Berkowitz was referring to was his neighbor Sam Carr. In addition to his murderous crimes, Berkowitz had been sending his neighbor threatening anonymous letters about his dog, a Labrador named Harvey. Journalist Jeffrey Wansel says this spoke volumes about Berkowitz's mental state. He's disintegrating in front of his own eyes, let alone anybody else's. He's living alone. He's obsessed by the fact that his neighbor's dog is barking all night. Berkowitz's threats escalated when, on a morning in April, he shot Harvey the dog with a 22 caliber rifle. This is a man falling apart, literally. He's convinced that he's hearing voices, that his neighbor, Sam, is influencing him, and that the dog is sending him messages that he must commit demonic acts. Somehow, the dog was not seriously injured. The police were in the dark about the shooter. A month later in May, Berkowitz put pen to paper again. He wrote a taunting and tenebrous letter to a daily news columnist named Jimmy Breslin. Jimmy Breslin was the top columnist in New York. So if Berkowitz wanted publicity and wanted to find someone who could take his story to the people and whose story would then be read, Jimmy Breslin was the man to do it. In the letter Berkowitz wrote to Breslin, he said, Sam's a thirsty lad and he won't let me stop killing until he gets his fill of blood. The city room was flooded with police officers. And then for the first time, the Daily News wasn't simply reporting the story, the Daily News was the story. 
This new letter from the son of Sam also acted as a confession to the murder of his first victim, 18-year-old Donna Loria. The killer asked Jimmy Breslin to celebrate the anniversary of her death. This prompted outrage among everyone. So we had in that story not only the infuriating letter that Berkowitz had written saying that Donna Loria was a wonderful girl and she should be memorialized, but also her family's reaction to that. Their anger, their deep, deep sadness and grief all came out in a single column by Breslin. A lot of people have interpreted this as some kind of affection, some kind of love. But what it is, it's about ownership and possession and control. And for many serial killers, the first victim is a very significant one, the first time that they start to feel like they're in control. So that's why there's an importance attached to her. There was no feelings of affection whatsoever. The publishers of the Daily News ran the letter to Jimmy Breslin in the weekend edition in hopes of maximizing its shock value. The letter wasn't published until Sunday when the largest circulation would be available. The public release of Berkowitz's letter to Jimmy Breslin did create a frenzy and a fear in the public and among journalists. Thanks to the massive amount of media attention, the police hotline received 250 calls a day of people reporting suspicions about neighbors, boyfriends, even their husbands. And the terror was further heightened by various press agencies attempting to one-up each other with the latest scoop on one of the biggest stories to ever hit the city. If you think at the time that this happened, women's liberation, rights for women, but all of that freedom, all of those liberties were suddenly curtailed because there was this monster on the loose. Desperate to catch the serial killer before he struck again, the NYPD began planting decoy female mannequins in parked cars to lure him into a trap. I think the biggest challenge was to get him as quickly as possible because you knew this wasn't going to be the last time he was going to kill. That was the pressure that was put upon, I think, all the investigators at the time and, and the fact that you knew that it wasn't going to end. On June 26th, Berkowitz shot a man and woman in Queens who luckily escaped with only minor injuries. However, his next targets would not be so fortunate. On July 31st, 20-year-old Stacy Moskowitz went out on a date with 20-year-old Robert Violante in Brooklyn. Understandably, both Stacy's and Robert's parents were worried about the young couple. That was their first date, and both Robert Violante's parents and Stacy Moskowitz's parents were concerned. And Stacy and Robert both said to their respective mothers, he doesn't go after blondes. He doesn't go after blondes. They felt that was going to be the case that night. After seeing a movie, the pair grabbed dinner before heading to a park in Bensonhurst, Brooklyn. Berkowitz was also in the area. He spotted them and then pulled up close to them. Berkowitz fired four times into the car and fled back into the park. Stacy remained in the car, seriously injured. Robert Violante blasted the horn, got out, staggered, and was leaning against a light pole. Berkowitz shot Robert twice in the face. His left eye was shattered, leaving him permanently blind. Stacy was pronounced dead 38 hours later in the hospital. When he struck in Brooklyn, I mean, there was hysteria within the city. The New York Post had on the front page, no one is safe 
from the son of Sam. The number of calls that came in to the hotline was overwhelming. People now felt he could go any place, and he did. So that people who thought that they were safe before no longer had that assurance. Suddenly he was all over the city and his victims were changing. So clearly that created a whole new element of fear that hadn't existed before. It is the most horrifying crime. People genuinely were afraid to go out. You cannot overestimate or exaggerate just how much that fear gripped the city. Stacy Moskowitz became the son of Sam's sixth victim. And Berkowitz continued to revel in the news coverage as his killings continued to make headlines. However, Berkowitz was unaware that he had left a key piece of evidence behind. And this discovery would finally point police in the right direction. In July 1977, 24-year-old serial killer David Berkowitz, known to the public as the Son of Sam, had murdered six young people within a year. The New York City Police Department had tasked 225 patrol officers and 75 detectives with working full-time on the case. But they were struggling to find any leads. Former Detective Sergeant Bill Gardella was brought in to investigate the latest killing that of 20-year-old Stacy Moskowitz at a Bensonhurst Park in Brooklyn. I was awakened in the middle of the night. They said, Sarge, it looks like we got a shooting in Bensonhurst, Brooklyn, maybe the son of Sam. I jumped out of bed, got dressed, and drove over to the scene at Bay 17th Street and the park. We were then given other detective units in Brooklyn to assist in questioning as many people as we could. No one was safe. He could strike anywhere. While Detective Gardella and his fellow officers combed the area for any new leads, reporters for New York's newspapers were also working to uncover information on the latest killing. Former Daily News reporter Brian Cates was sent to the home of Son of Sam's sixth murder victim, Stacy, where he met her mother, Nesha, for an interview. Nesha Moskowitz was stunned, really, by her daughter's death would talk about what a beautiful girl her daughter had been. How could this have happened to us? And then she'd fall silent. She'd look down at the floor and then look at the pictures she had of Stacy and start to cry. Sitting through this experience of grief was very difficult as a reporter. You have this great sympathy for this family, for this horrible death. As part of the investigation, Detective Gardella and his team hoped to track down witnesses who may have seen the killer. Three days later, on August 3rd, they had a breakthrough. Investigators found a 49-year-old woman who had been out walking her dog just minutes before Stacy's shooting. She observed a male coming in her direction, and he was carrying something in his hand. I don't know what it is, but I was upset. I was, I was afraid. I pulled my dog, went back, made a U-turn, went back into my apartment, and a few minutes later, I heard shots. I heard shots. And the woman had another piece of information. She told investigators that she had seen a car being ticketed by a patrolling police officer for parking next to a fire hydrant. However, when the detectives checked, there was no record of any tickets being issued. She insisted. I saw a summons being given out. We checked a second time. No summonses. We went back. She insisted so much. We'll give it one more try. 
fellow NYPD Detective James Justice was sent to meet the patrolling officer on duty that evening, hoping to gain some clarity about the elusive parking ticket. When I was able to speak to the uniformed officer, he informed me what had happened, that he had left it in his locker. And sure enough, there were four summonses given out, one of them to a David Berkowitz that lived in the Yonkers. That third attempt pick up that summons. If we didn't make three efforts, we would have not got Berkowitz then. David Berkowitz was finally on the investigation's radar, and more luck was coming their way. When Detective James Justice called Yonkers PD, the dispatcher who answered the call was the daughter of Berkowitz's neighbor, Sam Carr. Carr had been dealing with threatening messages from Berkowitz for some time. Weed Carr happened to live with her dad in an apartment house right behind the apartment house that David Berkowitz lived in. And she related to me various stories about Berkowitz and their association with him and the, the problems that they had with him and the fact that Berkowitz shot their black lab. In addition to harassing her father, Carr's daughter told Detective Justice about another neighbor who had been receiving strange messages. The man had recently found a fire burning outside of his door and suspected Berkowitz was to blame. The strangeness of what this guy was doing and the fact that he wasn't related to Sam Carr, but the name Sam was there. And I put this all in a report. My inspector asked me how everything went. And I said to him, I got a gut feeling we have the guy. Armed with this solid lead, Two detectives from the Son of Sam investigation were sent to Berkowitz's apartment on Pine Street in Yonkers. When they arrived, Berkowitz's Ford Galaxy was parked in the driveway. Cautiously, the officers peered through the windows of the vehicle to see if they could spot anything suspicious. They look into the car, and on the floor of the rear of the car, there is a army duffel bag, and protruding from the duffel bag, we thought it was a submachine gun, it was a semi-automatic rifle. Seeing the car was unlocked, the detectives decided to take a closer look. They enter the vehicle and they come up with a letter addressed to the Suffolk County police chief. The letter stated, you can't stop me, I'm coming out. And this was the straw that broke the camel's back to split the case wide open. This was the son of Sam. After the discovery, the officers called Detective Sergeant Bill Gardella with the news. He and five other NYPD officers rushed over to stake out Berkowitz's apartment. Four hours later, around 10 p.m., their patience paid off when the man in question approached his car. I took my gun out, ran down the sidewalk as fast as I could to confront Berkowitz before he had an opportunity to go for his gun. And I screamed at him, police, don't you go for a gun. And he slowly turns his head like this and smiles. So, well, he said, you got me. What took you so long? I think he knew that this was coming. He knew he wouldn't be able to get away with it forever. But this is someone who is, is very used to being in control. And he remains in control. He smiles, which I think the police find quite unnerving. Officers arrested Berkowitz and promptly put him in a police cruiser. On the ride from Yonkers to NYPD headquarters, Berkowitz was eager to face the press he knew was waiting. Berkowitz says, hey, guys, I guess the press is waiting for me at New York City Police Headquarters with their cameras. Can you do me a favor? Can you comb my hair? He's going to serve a life sentence in jail. He's concerned about his hair. 
And then when we pulled up to police headquarters, there were a few people on the street screaming. And I told the captain that was with me, Cap, I says, I want to go in the garage. He said, Bill, no, let's get our pictures taken. The mayor was at police headquarters. That was the end. That was it. New York Daily News reporter Brian Cates was working on the night shift when he got the news that the son of Sam had finally been arrested. Everybody was abuzz with this. There was jubilation in the city. And in fact, there were parties at uh, bars and clubs celebrating the fact that he'd been captured. There was a collective sigh of relief that the police had got their man and that hopefully the killings were over. There's no question that Berkowitz would have gone on. He would have killed again and again and again until he was eventually stopped. The classic serial killer. They don't stop until they're caught. It appears police captured Berkowitz just in time before he compounded tragedy even further. According to reports, he had been planning to carry out a mass shooting with the semi-automatic rifle found in his car. Bill Gardella recalls that he was one of the first police officers to search Berkowitz's apartment. Anytime I speak about his apartment, my body starts to chill because it's something that I had never seen before. He had photographs of all the girls he killed on the floor. He had cut them out of the newspapers, and he had holes in the wall. Voices used to come out of those holes to tell him to go out and kill. And he used to try to stop the voices by, by hitting the wall. And then he would write a note next to each of the holes. One of the notes I pretty much committed to memory, it said, hi, my name is Mr. Williams. I live in this hole. I'm raising little children to be killers. Can't wait until they grow up. It just was a sight I never forgot. And it's the only thing in my lifetime that if I talk about it, I get the chills. Beyond the unsettling writings on the walls, there were strange satanic symbols. It took officers less than a day to get a confession out of Berkowitz. He claimed that the devil was communicating with him through his neighbor Sam Carr's dog, instructing him to carry out the shootings. When deciding whether or not he was fit to stand trial, psychiatrists were split. These claims that he was hearing voices, that his neighbor's dog Harvey was essentially talking to him and this was the voice of a demon. Um, I think this is nonsense, to be honest. I think this is just part of his performance of trying to appear to be insane because he's been caught now and he wants to secure the best possible outcome for himself. And that outcome will always be better if you claim you're not responsible for what you've done. Eventually, it was ruled that Berkowitz understood the charges against him, and he was deemed fit to stand trial. Then, after consulting a priest, the son of Sam made an unexpected move. His lawyers wanted him to mount an insanity defense and go to trial. Berkowitz determined that he would not do that, that he would plead guilty, which he did, meaning that there would be no trial. On June 12, 1978, 10 months after he had been caught, 25-year-old David Berkowitz finally received his sentence. He was given a total of 365 years in prison for the murder of six people and severely injuring seven others. This is someone who's never, ever going to be released from prison. And I think he would have gone on to kill more people had he not been arrested. This man is incredibly dangerous. Even though he's been behind bars for nearly half a century... The name Son of Sam is still a reminder of the dread and panic that gripped New York City. 
That fear was fueled, of course, by the media. At the time of his last murders, the entire world reported on the capture of David Berkowitz. That's how far his reach uh, extended. He didn't do it for money. He didn't do it for sex. He did it because he felt like it, because he wanted to. And that makes him a very evil man indeed. What Makes a Killer is an Audio Boom original series in production with Woodcut Media and hosted by me, Jennifer Natoso. This series is produced by Audio Boom's Blair Payton, Lauren Vogel, Pam Burrows, and Karen Bevan. Production for Woodcut provided by Beth Parks, Jenny Day, and Kula Anastasi. Original music by Ben Kregi. Executive producer for Woodcut is Kate Beale, and for Audio Boom are Brendan Regan and Stuart Last. On the next episode of What Makes a Killer. February 13th, 1966. A group of young children spent the afternoon sledding down the snow-covered hills of Krakow, Poland. But one 19-year-old was looking for a very different kind of thrill. Press called him a, a vampire and a beast. People were really, really afraid. After he would kill, he took great pleasure in licking the knife and tasting the blood. This aspect of the vampirism is something that has made his crimes sufficiently unique. This is somebody who chose to do evil. He knew the difference between right and wrong, and yet he chose to harm others anyway.